0: you have your Bible today turn to uh, Matthew chapter 21 Matthew chapter 21 Uh, we're having a great time talking about crazy love crazy crazy love Uh, you know that's today we're talking about lukewarm love there's just a whole lot about lukewarm that you don't really like right how many of you here love lukewarm uh, lukewarm coffee Uh, That's really good. How about a lukewarm Diet Coke or Coca-Cola? That's always kind of nice, too. Uh, You know, there's just some things that need to either be hot or cold. You don't want anything in between, and uh, that's the way it is about love. Have you ever been lukewarm? Have you ever been half-hearted about something yourself? I have to confess something today. I am a lukewarm fan. I'm a lukewarm Chiefs fan. I, I grew up in Kansas City, spent 21 years in Kansas City. Uh, I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee, but I, I grew up in Kansas City, so the Chiefs were the big deal. We went down to the old municipal stadium, uh, a couple of bucks for a seat. Now a couple of bucks won't even get you a hot dog, but thats uh, I was a Kansas City Chiefs fan as a kid. We grew up, we, uh, we, because of our ministry, we went to the Amarillo, Texas area. Everybody rooted for the Cowboys, and I rooted for the Cowboys. I know, the Dallas Cowboys. That was a big deal. Then we moved to Southern California. And I rooted for all of the good Southern California teams. Actually, just the Chargers. That was the only one that I rooted for. San Diego is who we rooted for. We were were based in that area for about six and a half years uh, uh, near San Diego. And so I rooted for them. And now that I'm back in Northern California, now that I'm near San Francisco, I'm rooting for the Chiefs again. Ooh. Both of the Raiders fans didn't like that. Uh, I'm not the kind of a fan that a team wants, right? I'm. Not, you say, well, that's you know, Pastor, that's kind of bad. Wherever you've gone, and oh, I'm just rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs. They're three and O. That's the only time that's happened, maybe in my lifetime. I, you know, you have to root for that if that happens, even if they cheat doing it. It's wonderful to see that they're they're three and But I think that's an interesting thing. That's not the kind. Of, no team wants to have me as a fan. Oh if God was to ask how lukewarm you are how dedicated how committed you are would he want you on your team on his team would God want you as his fan as long as things are going well, as long as things are looking good, as long as that things are, are okay, as long as you're in the area, it's all right. But as soon as you move over to some other district, as some other, some other distinct place, as long as you're close to God, it's all right. But if you move away from Him a little bit, do you quit being a fan of God? There's a time in the Bible says, you're neither cold nor hot, and you make me want to throw up. You know, I, I wish I could make that nicer than it is, but that's what it says, he says, do you love me? Hmm. John 10.10, 10, Jesus made a promise to us. Look what it says. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've came, I, I have come that they may have a half-hearted, insincere, okay. Is that what he says? No, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. One of my favorite movies is Secondhand Lions. I don't know if you've ever seen Secondhand Lions. It's about two grizzly old guys. Uh, I, I, I just love them. Uh, it's uh, Hub and, Bar- and Garth. And they're sitting on their front porch with shotguns. And if salesmen come by, they try to shoot them with the shotguns filled with, uh, with uh, I guess, buckshot. I don't know. Maybe some, something else. Maybe some rice or something else. But they shoot these shotguns at these guys. They just have a, a great time. And their 10-year-old great-nephew comes, Walter. And they don't like him very much. And he hears stories of the way that they used to live and and that they had this wonderful life and all these adventures. And Walter's not sure that he believes any of this. And along the way, this little 10-year-old begins to unfold some of the grizzliness that's inside of them. And they begin to live their life again and they they've had all this hidden money, this secret money they don't know about uh, that no one else knows about but there's been rumors of and they begin to buy things and one of them is an old worn out lion he's he's come from a circus and then from a zoo and all he wants to do is just live out the rest of his life in peacefulness and they they grow a garden and the lion gets out and stays in this garden all the time and it's a picture of, of Hub and Garth they just want to finish their life in this quietness and and this little boy won't allow them to do that. And finally, by the end of the movie, the two older men have come and, they, and they're, they're back again. And they're living their life with all the ex- excitement and adventure. And at the very end, not to spoil it for you, but they buy this Red Baron style biplane. And Walter gets this call. And he's heard all these stories of, of sheiks and the Arabs and, and money and all this other stuff. And he comes to to see that the the two old men in their 90s now have punched a hole in the barn and there's this outline of this plane. They hit it so hard it just left this biplane out. I know, it doesn't make sense, but I I love the picture of that. And this young Arab sheik comes by helicopter and gets out. And he's heard all the old stories from his grandparents and he wants to know if these two old guys really lived and he gets out and he says oh they really lived and Walter the greatest line in the movie says no they really lived and at the end of my life I don't want to be a second-hand lion. I don't want to just be living out the last few days in peace and quiet I want to be go I want to go out as the Lord would have me to go out full of love and passion and vigor And fire for him. I want to live life to the full. How about you? E. Stanley Jones, one time, somebody said to him, he was a great evangelist some years ago. And he said, what's the biggest problem in the church today? And this is what he said, and I quote, We inoculate the the world with a mild form of Christianity so that it becomes immune to the real thing. We inoculate the world with this mild form of, oh, just believe and come on Sunday morning and and it's going to be stained glass and it's going to be wonderful and warm and it's going to feel good. We do that so they'll be immune to the real thing. Here's where I'm going today. God provides the only antidote for a lukewarm love. God provides an antidote for that. He has new expectations of love. And I want to look at the negative and the positive. The first is, what do we expect of a Christian? Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 16. What do we expect? I, it, you know, it's enough that we come to church and there, you have expectations. What, what, is, what do you expect of a Christian? Well, let's see what happened in Jesus' time. That, what did they expect? Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 says, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. I need to stop and explain that. Why were they in the temple? The Old Testament law said that when you came to bring a sacrifice, you had to have a spotless lamb. Well, if you lived in the Jerusalem area, not a big deal. If you lived up north in Israel, if you lived in southern Israel, it it was a big deal, but it wasn't a horrible deal. But the Jews came at that point at the time of Christ because they had been scattered abroad. They were in what used to be Babylon and Assyria and even all the way over to Greece, and they would make a pilgrimage once a year to Jerusalem, to the temple, and it's hard to get on a boat with this goat, with this lamb under your arm saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. It was just too hard to travel. It's hard to get on a camel and put a a lamb across it and keep it spotless, and so they would come to Jerusalem. They would come to the temple, and if they had enough money, they would buy a lamb, if they didn't have enough money they would buy a they would buy a dove a little bird and if they had Greek money or Assyrian money or Babylonian money or any other kind of money, they had to, to get it changed into shekels because that's the only money you could give to the temple. So they were changing the money. Now, go back. It says, Jesus went, entered into the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers where they were exchanging the, the, the currencies and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house." of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained? praise. What do we expect of a Christian? Well, we expect of a Christian to be connected to a church. That's the first thing. These people were connected to a church. They were the chief priests. These were the guys who were the examples. These were the guys that you looked at and said, oh, they understand the law. They've read the Bible. They know what's in there. This is the important thing for them. That's the people that we expect as Christians. And Jesus confused them. He frustrated them. He he cleansed the temple. This is in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, Chronologically, this is almost at the end of his ministry. In fact, it's probably right at the last Passover, which means it's just before Jesus goes to the cross. But if you read in the other Gospels, in John chapter 2, it talks about him cleansing the temple another time. And the words are different. And the scene seems to be different. And there are many biblical scholars who believe that the first Passover after Jesus was baptized, when Jesus began his ministry, he went into the temple first thing and he cleansed the temple. And he said, you guys don't get it. I'm going to upset the apple cart. I'm going to overturn the benches. I'm going to clear the tables. I want you to understand what church is all about. You're coming for the wrong reason. And they didn't get it. And three years later, he does it again. And at this point, they're beyond annoyed. At this point, they want to take care of him. He says they were indignant. It's not enough to be connected to church. Why did he do this? He was asking them, Why are you here? And I'm asking you the same question this morning. Why are you here this morning? Well, did you want to just put in an appearance or is it four appearances so that people will say, well, he got out of, out of his house early on Sunday morning and he went driving down to a church. I don't know which church. Maybe because it's expected of you. Maybe some of you were dragged here by your spouse. Maybe you came because of an invitation from a friend. I'm glad you're here. I'm not saying that. But the Lord says, it's not enough just to show up. Why are you here? What are you doing here? They missed the point. Why do you give? You know, he he overturned the money changers' tables. They couldn't come and get their shekels. They weren't going to give an offering. Jesus was disrupting the offering on a Sunday morning. Well, it would be a Sabbath day for them. But he was, I mean, we would never do that. We would never say to you, no, we don't take checks. You know, we don't do that. That's what he's saying here. Most of the people couldn't give that day. And Jesus said, I want to ask you a question. Why are you giving? This past year, this past May, we celebrated, Kathy and I celebrated our 35th anniversary. Kathy says to me about two weeks before our anniversary, whatever you do, I don't want you to get me 35 roses for my anniversary. That's what she told me. Which was good because I had not even thought of getting flowers for her. No, I'm just kidding. She said that because on her 25th anniversary, I bought her 25 long-stemmed roses. I thought that was a neat thing to do. And she can read me like a book. And so she's thinking, this guy's going to do this again. We had just barely paid off the 25 roses by the time the 35 rose time came. She didn't want me to do that again. We had to take a second mortgage. Now, it wasn't quite that bad. But you understand... And I said, okay, I promised her I would not get her 35 roses. And I immediately thought, what other flower can I get? (laughs) So the night before our anniversary, I got her 35 tulips, special ordered. You know how hard it is to order tulips in late May? They're not naturally here at that time. Why did I do that? Because she made me do it? because I had to do it. I gave them to her and I said, you know what, I don't do this out of love. I do this out of obligation. I do this because I have to. I do this because it's expected of me. That would have made a real impression on her, don't you think? She might have made a real impression on me if I had done that. No. I gave them to her because I love her. And I think Jesus came to the temple that day and he said... What are you doing? you hear are you giving to me because you expect do you think it 's expected what are, why are you giving to me? What are you doing here today? Do you come because you love me or do you come because you feel guilty if you don 't come he said, my house is a house of, of prayer the the whole quote from isaiah fifty six seven is my house is, will be called a a house of prayer for, for the nations. In Isaiah chapter 1, Jesus, uh, the Lord, through Isaiah, gives a scathing report to, to Israel. I mean, we look at Israel and we say, oh, we've learned so much from Israel. You know, Israel, look at what Israel did. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord, through Isaiah, says some really powerful things. And this is what it says in Isaiah 1.12. It says, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? He said, I don't even want you in my house anymore. You don't love me. In Isaiah 1 it says, your prayers will not be heard. In Isaiah 1 it says, your offerings are meaningless. In Isaiah 1 it says, your service is like your hands are full of blood because you're a bunch of murderers. Why are you here? Do you love me? He says. We expect a Christian to be connected to the church and the Lord expects a Christian to be connected to Christ. To love Him. To love Him so much that you couldn't stay away from a place that says that they worship him be connected to a church number two be free from the penalty of sin be free from the penalty of sin these people came in and they were saying don't you understand when you disrupted this we can't offer the sacrifice when when you when you disrupted these tables the doves got free they went flying out when you did this We couldn't sell the lambs anymore. These people's sins, they're not going to be covered. Who's going to have the sacrifice to do that? Once a year they had to do it. That's why they're so indignant. This is a big deal. They couldn't just come and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, and confess and get forgiveness like we can. In the Old Testament, this was a huge deal. At the time of Christ until Calvary, this was an incredible problem for them. Be free from the guilt, from the penalty. You see, we don't want to pay for disobeying the Lord, but neither do we want to stop doing what we're doing, do we? I mean, we don't want to pay for the penalty, but we don't want to necessarily stop the sins. Do you want to be free of sin, or do you want to be free of the penalty, the guilt of sin? Some of you are looking at me like, well, you know, Pastor, I am very godly. I want to be free from sin. Let me say this in the most pastorally way I can. Baloney. I want to be skinny. I want to, I want to finally... The only time I've been fighting my weight was from the time I was one year old. That's the only time for the last 55 years I have fought my weight Over and over and over and over. You've seen it. And I I fight it and fight it and fight it. I don't want to be heavy anymore. I hate it when I come into a clothing store and they they take one look at me and they say, your size is over there. Hate that. When I was a kid in Sears, the, the, the meanest thing that anybody ever put on the back of your jeans was husky. I hated that. Why didn't they just put wide load across your rear end? I hated that. I didn't want that. I want to be free from that, but I want to eat whatever I want to eat. I love pie. Pie is good. Pie is my friend. And if I had a piece of pie right now, I would eat it right this second. I want to be free from the penalty, but not from the actions. And the truth is, if you looked in your heart, you're the same way. And Jesus looked in the heart of these people, and they said, uh, we want to be free from the penalty of sin. And he looked in their heart, and he said, you might be free from the penalty of sin, but you're not free from the sinning that is in your heart. We do the bare minimum to, to keep ourselves from feeling guilty. A couple of weeks ago we went to this music conference. I love this music conference. It, at this church down in uh, Roseville, they had a Starbucks in the it, right right there by the church on church grounds. You could walk from the foyer about 12 15 paces across and here was a Starbucks. This must happen in heaven. I think for some of you are going, Starbucks in the foyer. That would be an awesome deal. And this woman came out of the meeting. I had come out because I was dying for something to drink. And I was standing in line because they had Diet Coke you know, in a in a nice, ice cold bottle, and I'm thinking, this is a good thing. And they said we could bring it back in the sanctuary. So I was getting my diet coke, and I will never forget, this is what she said. I want a fat-free, sugar-free, caffeine-free, cinnamon, dolce de leche, frappuccino with extra caramel. That's what she ordered. I thought this was hilarious. And then he says to her, Would you like it with the whipped cream? And she said, Of course. How can you have fat-free, sugar-free, caffeine-free, and have words like dolce de leche? Do you know what that means? More calories than you can stand. I think that's what that's Italian for. And she had that. I came back. I had to do it. I looked up on Starbucks, and if you get this, the uh, dulce, uh, cinnamon dolce frappuccino with extra caramel and whipped cream, you can build your own on the website. It's 650 calories. It's the same thing as a Big Mac. Is what she had for her drink. She wanted to say all the right words, but she didn't want to lose the experience. Don't we do the same thing with God? Romans 6 1 and 2, what does Paul say to them? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No way. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Pretty powerful. Number three is, he says, uh, we, we need to be connected to a church. We need to be free from the penalty of sin. We need to look good. We need to look good. I mean, as long as you look good, right? That's, that's what we expect of Christians. We need to look, look like a Christian. Uh, we sang the song, the hymn "I Need Thee Every Hour." I love that hymn. I think that's a beautiful hymn. Great words to the hymn. I was looking it up on the on uh, YouTube, and and there are a lot of different people do this song. and Isaac's a a, a country group of. Bluegrass feel to their their music. They travel with the Gaithers a lot. They had recorded it. And the first comment, or one of the first comments underneath it said, these sure don't look like Christians. The guitarist has long hair and a beard. They don't look like Christians. I mean, I know the songs they sing are about Christ and that they need Him every hour and they sing it with their heart and their soul and it was beautiful, but they don't look like we think they should look. Soldiers plucked out Jesus' beard at the crucifixion, by the way. It's not how you look. 1 Samuel 16, 7, you remember Samuel shows up and he's looked at David's brothers and he says, Ooh, this one's tall, dark, and handsome. He must be the next king. And what does the Lord say? The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. You might look great today, but God looks at the heart. What's funny is we were out biking yesterday, and there were a couple of people I'm sure that, that saw me walk up and and uh, you know I'd been airing up some bike tires and getting some things out and and moving things around and and I got there and I realized I had combed both hairs, but you know it just I wasn't looking real good and I didn't shave yesterday morning and I was looking a little scruffy and and you know we were riding the bikes and I went on down the way and was waiting for the rest of them and and there was somebody there and said hey what you doing I said it's a church group riding bikes and you could just see this kind of look and he said well who are you and I'm thinking hmm you know haven't shaved look a little scruffy hair's kind of wild and you know some older clothes and stuff and I said well I'm Gary Dixon I'm the assistant pastor at the church (laughs) I didn't really. God says, I'm not looking at the outside, I'm looking at the inside. Francis Chan says, the goals of American Christianity are often a nice marriage, children who don't swear and good church attendance. Jesus just wasn't interested in those who fake it. If you go to Matthew 23, we won't take the time this morning, but if you go to Matthew 23, it says everything they do is done for men to see in verse 5 and 27 28 he says you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like an open grave. I don't know if you've ever had to be somewhere where they've exhumed a body. I don't know if you've ever been someplace where someone who's been dead for several days has resided. I don't know if you've ever been, uh, just one or two times I've been into a house where they found someone who had been dead for a few days. And you walk in and the stench is unbearable. The Lord says, "Do, do you not understand? You think you look so good and the stench of your life is unbearable outwardly they appear righteous, he says in Matthew 23, but inside they're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What do we expect of a a Christian? Well, what does the Lord, what does God expect of a Christian? That's really the question. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 17. 1 John 4, 7 through 17. You know, it's one thing about what we expect, but what does God expect? 1 John 4, 7 says, dear friends, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Don't don't rush over that. He says, listen, this is what God expects. These are the people who have been born of God and know God. Look at verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. is made complete in us. That phrase is going to be repeated again. Did you get that? You want to know how to complete God's love? God's love is made complete in us. Verse 13, We know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Look at verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, that's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe He's the Son of God. That's giving full awareness. The word there is a very precise word. If you acknowledge it with all of your life, if you acknowledge that Jesus is, is the Son of God. God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. In this way, love is made complete among us. Second time that it's there. Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. What that mean? What does God expect of a Christian? Well, I see three things. Number one, know Christ. What what he expects of us is not just to be connected to a church, but to know Jesus Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The Lord said in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He calls us to assembly once a week to remind us of how much we need him. Coming to church is, is not only not a bad thing, it's a necessary thing. It's an important thing. It's an important time. The corporate worship that we have as we sing, as we pray, as we study God's Word should carry over into the week. If this is the only time you worship, then shame on you. But if you know Him, you'll worship all week long. I don't even really like to call this place the worship center. I mean, it is a corporate worship center, but it should be so much more that we worship out on the streets, in the jobs, in the schools, wherever we go. But the Lord says, when it all comes down to it, do you know me? Acknowledge that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Son of God. You see, there's knowing and there's knowing. George Bernard Shaw loved to play with words. And George Bernard Shaw, one time in, in an English in the, in the London paper, wrote this column, and he said, there's only two words in the English language that begin with the letter S, S, but have the S-H, the sh sound. And he wrote that column and, and it was about some of the funny things in the English language, but he forgot to mention the two words and he got this letter the next week and this woman wrote and said, uh, dear Mr. Shaw, we, we, you know, we appreciate the column and we thought it was entertaining, but you're wrong. There's only one word, it's sugar, S-U-G-A-R, but it has the S-H sound. There's only one word in the English language, it's sugar. And he said to his secretary, just type this out and send it to her. It was a letter, it didn't even sign it, it had three words. And this is the question that he asked. Are you sure? You see, you know and you don't know. You think you know, but you don't really know. Do you know Christ? Matthew seven twenty-three, Jesus says, One day, many will stand in my presence, and he will say, They'll say, Lord. We taught for you. We did these things. We followed the law. We we did all of this stuff. And he'll say, depart from, ye, from me. I never knew you. I didn't have this relationship. I didn't have this intimacy. Paul writes to, Tim, uh, to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 12, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him on that day. Knowing Christ means you realize who... He is, the love that He gives, and that everything He does is bathed in as a result of His love because God is love. Love does not just describe God's essence. Love is; uh, does, doesn't just describe His attributes. It is His essence. Love is who God is. To know God is to know this crazy love. It's a mind-boggling task. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ. We sang it. I, knowing you. When we got to that third verse, it says, Oh, to know the power of your risen life and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, and so with you to live and never die. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. So many times when I see this quoted in the books I'm reading, I I say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and stops right there. And he says, no, you really want to know me, you have to know me in in my completeness. It's not only to know the power of my resurrection, it's what Fred was saying as as he said, I went through this time uh, just uh, within a couple of months to be having surgery on a Sunday morning when he didn't even expect to be in the hospital to know Him in His sufferings, to find the fullness of God's glory and His grace and His power in those times when you don't know which way to turn. But we don't want that part. You might think that you know and you don't really know, and it just blows your mind that you don't really know. In 1991, I went to Russia on a mission trip, and we had just a few hours one afternoon and we were in St. Petersburg, and they said, we have planned something special for you. We have the, the, uh, the art museum, in, in the Hermitage is open. The Hermitage was the winter palace of the czars, back in the time of the czars. There are, it's now five different buildings, 140 showrooms. Of the 140 showrooms, this auditorium would be one of the smaller rooms. 140 rooms like this auditorium, spread over five buildings, and they said, we want to take you to these rooms, and I I was writing down, just jotting down, there are two of only 12 known oil paintings by Leonardo da Vinci in the Hermitage. Uh, There are paintings by Michelangelo, 22 by Rubens, and statuary by Michelangelo as well, 22 oil paintings by Rubens, that's the most of any place, 20 by Rembrandt, The room with Rembrandt was about this size of room, and around the outside of it were all of these pictures. And it went all the way. It was the whole story from the Old Testament, from Abraham's offering of Isaac to David and Jonathan and their love and their friendship for each other, the the child Jesus, the Jesus with the disciples on the cross, the descent from the cross, 20 pictures that gave all of the Bible in one setting. I was fascinated by that. It was an amazing art museum, just astounding. And as we were leaving, I said to the interpreter, I said, this was, this was amazing. This may have been one of the most amazing afternoons of my life. I said, I'm so glad I got to see all of this. And she laughed. And I said, what are you laughing at? And she said, you were just in one building. And I said, well, I know they have other things. And she says, you don't understand. The Hermitage, she said, I, I would love to say that we got all of these the right way. We didn't because it was the Soviet Union at the time. She said, we sold many of these paintings, but they are, this is the greatest art collection we believe in the world. And I said, well, how many pieces of art do you have? She said, three million. Let me put that in perspective. She said this, and I checked her on it. Her math was right. She said, if you stood in front of each of the 3 million, of pieces, three million pieces of art, and she said, by the way, we only have out 500,000 because we don't have room in 140 rooms. We only have 500,000 pieces of art out because we don't have room for the other two and a half million to be out there in storage. If you took 10 seconds in front of each piece of artwork, it would take you 57 years, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to see the three million at 10 seconds a piece." You say, wow, that's pretty impressive. No, that's pretty impressive. Because Paul, at the end of his life, with all of his beatings, with all that had gone on with him, with all that he had learned, with all that he had written to us, he says, as one of his dying declarations toward the end of Philippians, I want to know Christ! I've been to one room, and I've seen one room of what He is, but I want to know Him. I want to know Him. Is that the way you feel? What does God expect of a Christian? To know Him. Number two, to love God unconditionally. It's impossible to know God and not love. It's impossible to know Him. It says time after time in 1 John, if you know Him, you love. And the ultimate expression of God's love was the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says He became the atoning sacrifice. That's a a Greek word, helosmos means the just wrath, what we deserve, all of the the horrible things that we deserve have been turned away. They've been been pushed over to the side. It's satisfied. It's turned away. It's accomplished at infinite cost to the one who loves. And your account has been balanced. Romans 5.10 says, when we were God's enemies, God loved us. There's a couple of different kinds of love. There's a conditional love. We love conditionally. If you do this, I will love you. If you give this, I will love you. If you say this, I will love you. If, then, if, then. That's the way we love. And God says, no, I love you. I love you unconditionally. They had to take a word and make a new meaning for it at the time of the writing of the New Testament because there was nothing that really expressed that. We don't love like that. We love Elvis Presley-style love. You know Elvis Presley-style love? You remember the song Elvis Presley? Because I can't help falling in love with you. Isn't that neat? The truth is, you could help it. Or God could help it. God looked at us and said, they're not very lovable. They're not very loving. When we were still enemies, Christ loved us. God could help loving us, but he chose to love us anyway unconditional love you choose to love him anyway paul finally came in philippians 1 21 to say this for me for to me to live is christ and to die is game you know what's sad for some people for me to live is a football team for me to live is a you know this pleasure that i have for me to live is getting married for me to live is my kids for me to live is you fill it in with something else the Lord says, I want you to love me completely, totally. For me to live is Jesus Christ. And here's the last one, love others thoroughly. Love others thoroughly. Matthew 22, they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. All that you are, love him. And the second one, he says in Matthew, and the second is like it, love Your neighbor as yourself. I think it's interesting. He doesn't just say love a lot. He says love them just like you love you. Love them as much as you love yourself. And you know what they said? Well, who's our neighbor? Who's our neighbor? Who should we love? Let me give you two categories real quick. The one is love the greatest. Love Love the greatest among you. That's the, the sister that's prettier than you. That's the brother who's more athletic. It's the, it's the person in your office that always gets the promotion. It's the person that you hang out with that you finally realize one day they really are smarter or better or something in other, some area. They really are better than you. Love them. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. I love the story of David and Jonathan. David is a shepherd boy, and he comes and plays the guitar, and Saul says, cool, let's make him, you know, a part of the, of the entourage, and Jonathan comes to love David and realizes that David's a better commander, David's a, 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 a wiser man, David is a sharper guy in a lot of different areas, and Jonathan, it says, is attached to him with love. I think the other category is not only the greatest, but the least. Love the least of these. The, the ignored, the overlooked, the undervalued, even your enemies. Uh, Matthew 5, says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I still can't get over Stephen. Paul is standing there. It's be pre-conversion. It's before he's met Christ. Paul is standing there and saying, guys, drop your coats here. Grab a rock and let's go out and kill this guy. That's what Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, the apostle Paul, is saying. He's saying, drop your coats at my feet. And what does Stephen do at the very end? As they're taking these huge stones and pelting him and killing him, what does he say? Lord, forgive them. He's praying for them. He's loving the least of these. First John 4, 12 says, God's love is made complete in us. In verse 17, it says, In this world we are to be like Him. Reminds me of two people, and I'll close. Caleb was a nine-year-old. Caleb was a nine-year-old who loved basketball and who thought girls had cooties. You know nine-year-olds? You know guys like that? He didn't want to be around girls. But he loved basketball, and there was one other thing that he absolutely loved, and that was his weed. His Wii was everything, and there was a new game that came out for his Wii video system, and he wanted to have it, but it was sixty nine dollars and he had saved he 'd saved and saved and saved all summer long. see three people woke up for this he saved and saved and saved all summer long for this uh, for this video game. He finally had twenty dollars and he went to Sunday school and he heard the children 's minister at his church talk about the children in honduras central america who didn't have clean drinking water and he went home and he prayed about it and he had the the sunday school teacher and the children's ministry director had given him a name and address and he looked it up on the computer and he found the address and he went got an envelope and he asked his mom for a stamp and she said why and she looked inside the whole twenty dollars was there she said, honey, you go tell your dad what you just did. And he walked in and he said, dad, the children in Honduras don't have clean drinking water and I want to get them a well. And he said, how much is a well? And he said, it's almost $200 to dig this well. And his dad said, well, I can give you 40 And his dad put 40 in the envelope. And he said, before you seal up this envelope, I want you to go to the children's minister and tell her what you did. And he went to the children's minister and she got tears in her eyes and she got a $20 bill out. And the other teachers heard. And before they knew it, they didn't pay for the whole Well, They paid for two wells in Honduras because Caleb, a little nine-year-old boy, had his heart touched for the least of these. There's one other story. It's a true story. In 1988, a man by the name of Nicholas Winton was up in his attic in 88, and his wife of many, many years was there, and she found this scrapbook, and it had all of these pictures, over 600 pictures, 669 pictures of children in this scrapbook. And she said, honey, what is this? I've never seen this before. He says, oh, it's just from the war. And she said, I know, but what is this? And he said, it's not important. And she said, Nicholas, what is this? You've never kept a secret from, you, from me. And he said, here's the, the story. In 1939, I was 29 years old and I began, I went, because I was a stockbroker, I had some business and I went to Prague and I realized that Hitler was coming into Czechoslovakia and that the children were going to be killed. And so I went to some of the families, I met them on the street and just said, if I could get your child out of Czechoslovakia, would you allow me to do that? And he got a train full of kids in March of 1939, he got the first one. He raised all of the money himself. He arranged for the, all of the, plane, uh, the train tickets himself. He arranged all of the foster homes himself. He kept it completely quiet. He went to the Prime Minister of Britain, and somehow, because of some people he knew, got to get in, and he told them what was going on, and he got all of the visas for these kids, so they came in, they came in legally. Between March of 1939 and September 1st, when the last train was supposed to leave, he got 669 children in from Czechoslovakia. The last day they had 250 kids on the train, but it was the day that Hitler invaded Poland and they shut down the railway. Those 250 kids were never seen again. Their bodies were never found. They were never returned to their parents. They've never shown up in any way. 250 kids that he did not get out, but 669. He was so heartbroken over the 250. He allowed all of the kids to go to the homes, but he never gave them his name and he never contacted them again. But he had all of the stubs and all of the proof. And his wife began to write the kids. In 1990, Nicholas Winton met 7,000 people who were alive. Because he loved the least of these. He loved somebody else's kids. And he met the 669, those that were still remaining alive. And then he met their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And he, when he passed away just a little over a year ago, had met most of the 7,000 people that were alive because he loved others. You may not be Nicholas Winton. You may never have the opportunity of saving a single child's life in a war situation. But you can certainly be Caleb. Caleb. You can do what God has called you to do, to know him, to love him, and to love others. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? What an awesome God you are. Father, you may at some time wish that you could come through this church and turn over some chairs and ask us the same question you asked that day as Jesus was in the temple. What are you doing here? Why did you come? Lord, we're good at appearances. We're good at expectations. But not at your expectations, at our expectations. You long to have a love relationship with us. You long to know us. To transform us. To give us new life. New love. For you, and for others a love that we can't possibly no matter how moving the story might be we can't kindle that love in our heart but you can father so do that even today lord we need you and we love you and may this be all about you and not about us may we turn our eyes focus our eyes on who you are who your son is and what he's done for us So today, Father, may we give our lives because of the love you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.